Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get right into it. All right. We see a lot of apocalypses in sci-fi. Apocalypses, apocali, apocrypha. You know what I'm talking about. Some of these are pretty similar to themselves. Uh, there are a ton of stories where we have apocalypse by killer robot, by viruses, zombies, viruses that lead to zombies, nuclear fallout. Uh, we got aliens. I mean, there's all these tales as old as the genre itself. And in shows uh, like the 100, for example, we see multiple world-ending events happen that end up spawning different post-apocalyptic scenarios. We get cannibalistic gladiator societies. Uh, we get the takeover of uh, the remainder of the human populace by an artificial intelligence. Uh, we get people reverting to Iron Age and tribal societies. Hell, we get space pirates. <laughs> uh, we, we get it all, baby. I mean, the, if you want a show that is kind of a day-by-day -day drama, but is also a post-apocalyptic semi-sci-fi show, The 100 is a pretty good show. But uh, we see, kind of as the main theme of this show, that humanity uh, has this tenacious ability to adapt and survive even the worst and most harrowing of experiences. And not only the events that happen to the main characters in the show The 100, I, I mean... We, we see the characters develop these deep-rooted darknesses, and then they learn how to overcome them, both as individuals and as a collective. So it's not just that the apocalypse happens, right? And it's a shit sandwich. It's what do you do to survive in the apocalypse, or post-apocalypse? And what... What, what do you become because of that? Uh, is it for good or for ill? Can you overcome it? And this kind of leads us into the question of this episode. What is the best way to survive in the post-apocalyptic world of tomorrow? Now, we see a lot of answers to this question throughout the sci-fi genre. Um, but in the 100, just... Let's just keep with that example. Um, as well as a few other really popular shows, they give us some kind of direct answers to this through character analysis. Um, we get the same kind of question and answer in uh, The Walking Dead, for example. We, we get the same brands of character development, breakdowns, and analysis as we do in The 100, just with zombies being the backdrop of the conflict instead of, you know, nuclear fallouts and space pirates and uh, crazy AI that want to create the Matrix. 
So these shows would kind of boil down to give us two main answers, I think. Uh, and the answers to how to survive are do whatever you can to make it to tomorrow. And it is okay to lose yourself along the way as long as you can make your way back to who you are. So really kind of stay true to yourself. So let's look at those answers. Um, first, do what needs to be done to survive. This means whatever it needs to mean. If you need to push an innocent bystander in front of an explosion in order to shield yourself, do it. If there's a hostage situation and you have to choose to either sacrifice yourself or send out three people to be killed every 10 minutes, you choose yourself every time. Keep in mind, this is set in a literal hellscape. It's an environment where death, more often than not, will be the most brutal and painful that you can imagine. So the rules of ethics and morality have to be revised entirely, seen with a kind of perspective that we can barely even imagine. So yeah, if you need to sacrifice your ethics, give up your ideals, slice off a finger or two, kick a puppy out of a 10-story window, whatever it is you need to do in that moment to live until tomorrow, you better damn do it. Like the, the only consequence in that world is that you will be alive. And that's what matters. Okay, second answer from... Uh, the 100 and The Walking Dead, because I think both of these shows do give us the same answers. But that second answer to our question is, it's okay to lose yourself as long as you make your way back to who you are. Now this one is a bit more nuanced, because you are going to have some personal growth and development along your journey, right? But if you slip into some kind of dark and malicious tendencies, uh, you give in to committing war crimes, let's say, you kick multiple puppies out of windows, all in the name of survival? Okay. But all of those evil acts do not define who you are, and you have to work your way back to being the person that you were before committing all of these atrocities in order to live. Now the difference between the two answers is that the first one deals with survival in the moment. The second answer deals more with how you continue to live after you survive your ordeals. So that second answer really deals more with are you going to let these actions change you? Are, are you going to let them shape your future actions outside of these perilous predicaments. And if you do, you have to figure out how to cleanse yourself of that darkness and get back to the person that you know that you could be. This is a really common trope in any sci-fi fantasy action series, especially a you know, a show like The Walking Dead or The 100. 
Now, there are some fun aspects of surviving the apocalypse. I mean, if we look at The Last of Us and how, let's say, let's say we look at how Bill survives Nick Offerman's character. Now, that's a pretty badass way to do it. It also <laughs> does uh, kind of end up being a I told you so moment for all of those hardcore survivalists and doomsday preppers. And I mean, who doesn't love good I told you so? Um, now, Bill survived by being extremely cautious. He set up traps everywhere to keep outsiders from encroaching on his personal paradise. Uh, he mastered playing piano. He, he cultivated gardens. He read a bunch of books. He is living a solitary man's dream. And, I, I mean, he, he goes the full nine yards and does what not a lot of people think about whenever they think post-apocalypse. Uh, he, he runs his own power plant. Uh, who, who wouldn't want to run their own power plant? Uh, he's constantly building up defensive structures and walls. I, I mean, that's pretty fun. I, I think it might be a guy thing, to be honest. Like, we, we really like building stuff like that. I don't know. But maybe that's just me. So we can definitely consider the hermit, isolationist approach. And we can see how that stuff works out with Bill. Because it, it, I mean, it works out really well. Uh, funny enough, it's not any result of the apocalypse that kills him in the end. It was in this frankly beautiful and tragic and beautifully tragic uh, fulfillment of purpose that drives him to commit suicide. Now, he does happen to meet somebody named Frank, uh, and Frank develops this illness. He's at death's door, and Bill is taking care of him, um, they they live a pretty nice long life together. So um, in in the end, the pain kind of becomes too much for Frank. So Bill laces some wine with enough poison to kill a horse. I, I think he says kill a horse or kill five horses, whatever it is. But he gives that to Frank to um, give him this really painless, merciful death instead of letting the disease kill him. And he, uh, he leaves a note for Joel saying that feeling fulfilled in having cared for the love of his life until the end, Bill felt that it was only right to die alongside him. And so he also drank the poisoned wine as well. And while I would not advocate this path <laughs> that Bill chose, uh, this this death by poison wine don't don't do that uh, i would encourage to emulate how bill lived i mean he was ever cautious preparing for the worst constantly building up defenses never letting your guard down and in a world that's in a world that's shattered and dangerous as it is i think it would behoove anyone to do anything less I mean, this makes Bill's lifestyle a great example of how 
exactly to go about things and to never be stagnant or complacent, which we, we have a lot of uh, issues with, I think, in our modern day and age in, uh, in today's societies. Now, being stagnant and complacent in a post-apocalypse world, that's going to get you killed. So, how do we survive our own post-apocalypse? Well, I mean, you know, that, that apocalypse might be coming around the corner at any second these days. Uh, in all likelihood, we would probably be looking at nukes going off everywhere. You know, and it's going to devastate the entire planet. You know, this whole mutual destruction, pseudo-suicide pact that the major powers of the world have with each other. Uh, I mean, we're talking not just the explosions cooking everything, but uh, the the aftermath is what will devastate the rest of the planet. I mean, you, you've got acid rains, flora and fauna mutations for decades, if not millennia, uh, poison and boiled oceans. The sun would be blocked out for, like permanently with a cloud of ash and soot and fumes for years. I mean, the, and then the nuclear winter would come. I mean, that's, that's going to freeze most of the planet and kill off most of the things living on the surface. So yeah, it, it sounds pretty damn dreadful, doesn't it? <laughs> so, what's a good solution? Well, let's figure out what we would need for this kind of scenario. In doing that has always been one of my favorite parts to ponder, is, is just kind of prepping in my head, I guess. If, if I could have the perfect pent-ultimate um, post-apocalyptic bunker, like that, <laughs> I, I think a, a ton of people love thinking about that kind of stuff. Okay, so a lot of the tech that's used by astronauts in space, I think would become really essential. Um, if, if you are going to have an underground bunker, I, I think that kind of uh, insulation that keeps out the coldness of space and keeps the astronauts warm, I, I think that's going to be pretty good to have. Um, water purifiers to recycle liquids into drinkable water uh, you you could have like a mini water treatment plant right so you don't have to tap into some sort of water table or uh, you, you don't have to filter nuclear tainted rain because the the rain for I don't know years it's it's gonna be poison it's, it's going to be acid, and it, it can kill you, so you don't need that water. Uh, you're going to need a lot of compact foodstuffs that don't take much to fill up somebody. I, I think astronauts need tooth... It, they got, like, these tubes of toothpaste that is food somehow. Um, so you could have a lot of that. You could also uh, build up a lot of hydroponic plant farms that take very little light or water to maintain or grow. 
Um, I also think that you would need two facilities, right? You're going to need one above ground and one directly below it. And in the facility above ground, I would want to construct the building out of steel reinforced concrete. I don't, I don't want anything getting through that building. Uh, I want it surrounded with a 15 foot high fence uh, that's just covered in razor wire all over it so nobody could climb it and clipping through it with uh, bolt cutters is going to be super dangerous. Uh, you could have another fence on the interior right, uh, uh, right before the building. Uh, that one could be more like a, an iron rabbit fence, so you can't really, well, you could use bolt cutters, but you're going to break those bolt cutters, I think, having to cut through all of those bars of iron. Um, yeah, so a one, one big, tall razor wire fence, one uh, really strong ironclad rabbit fence. Now, you're, uh, you're also going to want two entrances to the building that can only be opened from the inside. And the purpose of the above ground facility is basically to be kind of a buffer zone uh, between external threats and your actual home, which would be the below ground facility. So, like I said, you're going to make the walls and the roof out of concrete and metal to, to the point of being absolutely bulletproof, by the way. You, you're not going to want anything getting through your walls or your ceiling. Um, I'm talking like not even a 50 cal being able to do much damage. So, boy, is going to have to be thick, right? Uh, you, you want to be strong enough to where you would need a tank to burst through that thing. And, I mean, to to that point, uh, keeping any firepower of that magnitude from kind of rolling up outside of your fences, uh, you'd kind of want to surround them with trees and some deep ditches, uh, maybe a few sand traps and holes scattered throughout the forested areas. You're basically making the terrain another layer of natural defense. Uh, keeping it to where vehicles wouldn't be able to traverse right, and roll up to your fences. So whoever's coming at you is going to need to do so on foot. Now, when you set up your two entrances, you're going to set them up in the exact same way. The first door is going to be this huge, heavy set steel door whose locking mechanisms basically turn it into another wall. Um, and if the aggressors get through that door, they'll have to go down this really short, narrow hallway leading to a second door that will only open by inputting a numbered code and a biometric scan next to the door. Now, assuming the aggressors know that this feature might be there. Let's also assume that they can smash into the electrics of the locking mechanisms, hotwire that thing, and make the door open. Let's just say that they know how to do that. 
So what would be inside this above-ground facility now that our aggressors have gotten into it? This is where things get kind of complicated. So we would continue on with the narrow hallway motif, but make it super dark. Right? Let's build a labyrinth inside of the facility and just litter the thing with trip wires, spike traps, pitfalls, all the Home Alone-styled machinations you could dream up. And have the labyrinth path lead towards the second entrance. Make the entirety of the first floor of the facility be the labyrinth, nothing else. It leads nowhere but the second entrance. Now this is going to confuse, disorient, and demoralize the intruders. It's either going to kill them, seriously wound them, or sap their will enough to where they might just give up, cut their losses while they can, and just leave. Now what they won't find is a door located directly to the side of the entrances that's going to be disguised as part of the wall. But behind this perfectly hidden door will be a staircase leading up to a second floor. Now that second floor is going to have the same kind of, you know, locking mechanisms, uh, bolt lock, biometric, all that kind of good jazz, right? But in that second floor, you're going to have some living areas, a few amenities like games and activities. Um, I'm thinking pool, darts, shuffleboard, things like that. Uh, maybe you have a really widescreen TV with a whole bunch of DVD collections of some classic shows. Um, or if there's no electricity to be had at the moment, uh, maybe everything can be illuminated by candlelight or braziers. Uh, you could line the walls with bookshelves, right? Just maybe you have some painting supplies, some, some canvas stock. And in the middle of it all, in the middle of the entire facility, you're going to have this large winding staircase leading down to the underground facility. Now the underground facility will be twice as big as the above ground. It's, it's literally going to be the foundation for your post-apocalyptic fortress of paradise. Now it's going to have your hydroponic gardens, your water recyclers, your mechanic and workshops to build and repair defenses and such. Uh, it'll have your workout rooms. You know, gotta keep fit. Uh, you can make really lavish and themed living quarters. Right? You, you could do separate rooms, you could do it dormitory style. Uh, you'll want a power generator room where you have power reserves uh, intaking from several forms of generation. Um, you could have some solar panels put on top of the above ground facility though it would take a few years for the dust and ash clouds to dissipate so for the first maybe five to ten years uh, you might have to rely on 
diesel and gas-powered generators, although that would mean that your resources are incredibly finite. Um, you could have a 5,000-gallon drum generator. That thing's only going to last you a couple of months if you, if you run it full kilt to power your facilities. Um, you could also build up a bunch of battery power via kinetic energy generation, you know, which would basically be putting a, a pedaling bike that's hooked up to a kinetic converter that feeds into a big battery. And that's going to give you some modicum of energy, but it's never going to be enough. So use your resources sparingly. Unless you want to bring a few people in to live with you, then you all could just take turns constantly feeding the battery some energy. And, uh, you know, it would be kind of nice to share all this with a few pals, you know, so you, you don't go insane, <laughs> you have somebody to talk to. Uh, you would also need a communications suite, let's say a, an enormous computer room, right, filled with a whole bunch of older, more durable and rugged tech, uh, as well as modern technology. You know, um, you would have this suite to try and see if there's communication going on in the outside world. Although your goal with this is not to try to communicate with other survivors, it's meant to only determine whether or not there are survivors. And in any post-apocalypse, information is as key as food or water. So knowing who is out there can help determine how ready you might need to be to defend yourself or if you need to be ready to defend yourself. Or hell, you can just stick yourself underground for 20 years and not need to, right? The world could put itself back together and you could go out there and join it. You don't know. You, you might be living like a mole person for no reason. And wouldn't you feel silly? Speaking of which, another thing you would need is an arms and armory suite. Now this is going to be somewhere where you will store guns and body armor and bullet presses, uh, all of those kind of machines necessary to, you know, give you a ready supply of bullets should you run out because it's really easy to do so. Uh, we'll also need a kitchen with an enormous pantry. You can stack canned goods and non-perishable foods for decades worth of meals. I, you just have to be careful about rationing what you have. Let's say you have enough food to last 10 years. If you plan on eating two meals per day of two cans worth of food and a bag of potato chips. But if you go off the deep end one day and you, you binge a bunch of food, you could carve down your supplies by years worth. And that just ramps up your need to venture out and forage, you know, most likely fighting off the mutated cannibals and giant monsters. Now the hydroponic plants will provide some sustenance, 
but you don't want that to be your only food source. Now personally, I like a good can of pork and beans to go along with my green sloppy plant mush. And I think the kitchen should be as stocked as possible. Uh, not just with foodstuffs, but with tools and whatnot. Uh, have several large wood-burning stoves and grills uh, with the ventilation leading up into the above-ground facility, but not out of it, so you don't give away your position. Uh, you could fill that kitchen to the brim with spices and flavor additives, flour, salt, vegetable oils, things that have a really long shelf life. Now, having such a well-stocked food and water supply will also go to great lengths to maintain your sanity. Because it's really easy to go insane in this kind of scenario. Uh, especially if you're going to be alone for 10, 20 years. Now, the last thing that we'll need is an infirmary. And despite our best efforts, we are going to get sick and injured. And when this happens, having sterile equipment necessary to clean and suture wounds, that's going to be pretty paramount, because you can't be having infections and diseases in a post-apocalypse. I mean, also, if you're going to bring other people into your sanctuary, you will most likely need a place where people can go and have babies or undergo surgery. Having a dedicated medical wing will probably be the best way to ensure the safety and longevity of your people. Now conversely, what do you do when people die? Uh, assuming all of this planning and prepping works, uh, and you and your people survive well into old age, where are you going to be disposed of whenever you die? <laughs> what? What happens uh, if some people die young and earlier on? What's going to happen to the bodies? Can't leave them out to putrefy and spread disease. I mean, you could always toss them out on the surface uh, between the two fences. You might be able to bury them if it's not too terrible outside. Uh, you'd have to do it really quickly as human bodies decay very rapidly. Um, you also don't want to stay out that long in the open, you know, because you never know how widespread the nuclear fallout is. Uh, there might be roving bands of mutated monsters just staking you out, ready to jump that 15-foot fence. But hey, you know, if you guys can make it to old age during the post-apocalyptic era, I mean, that's a damn big achievement. It, not too many will be able to do that, I don't think. Let her alone remain human or intact. Hell, if you guys are really lucky, you may even be able to repopulate enough to start the world over. Maybe find a few pockets of other survivors out there who are free of radiation sickness or mutation. Know, begin the next age of human civilization. Of course, this will have to be after the war against all the mutant hybrids and whatnot. 
so yeah, I, I think that setup that we've imagined is probably the best way to survive in the post-apocalyptic world of tomorrow. Trust very few people, hoard all the resources and weapons that you can, never stop building defenses, and strive to keep yourself physically fit, healthy, and sane. Just wait out the worst of whatever is out there as long as you can. Do what is necessary to survive. And if you are able to, thrive as well as you can. But that is all the time I have for today, guys. Thank you all so much for tuning back in. Stick around for more Sci-Fi Unchained. But for now, live long and prosper, my friends. And may the Force be with us all.